Here's a super fun way to support the show. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash store and buy some Maniac on the Loose merchandise. Let the world know you're a listener. T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, hats, mugs, there's a bunch of items to choose from. And you have a multitude of design choices, including all of my book covers. Go take a look. It's super cool. Go on. Do it. Right now. Go. Maniacontheloose.com slash store. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. (laughs) I am your host, just your friendly neighborhood maniac on the loose. Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. The Nine Lives of Ski Mask Life 3 In Aeternum Chapter 1 An Uninvited Visitor Dr. Franklin Grimm sits at a counter in the lab and stares sadly at a picture of his mother. In the photo she is young, elegant, and happy. He picks up the picture frame and holds it closer to his face. He takes it in for a few seconds, lets out a deep breath, and sets it back down. It is common for Dr. Franklin Grimm to stay behind in the lab for an hour or so after his father leaves. It gives him the opportunity to clear his mind as he tidies up the lab for the next day. He stands, wrings out a plaid rag, and begins wiping down the counters. As he cleans, he thinks back to the previous night when the strange, frightening man unexpectedly entered their lives. The scowl that man gave them before he left was terrifying. Franklin reflects on the conversation he had with his father afterward. Holy shit, who the hell was that guy? He's scary as hell. Why did you let him go? We lost him and Subject M. Alfred shakes his head disappointedly. Have you not learned anything from tonight? A light goes off in Franklin's head. The tracker. If need be, he might just go to the cops. Do you really think a man like that would go to the police? Besides, I suspect he'll return. What? Why the hell would he come back here? I noticed a curiosity behind those eyes. (laughs) You did? All I noticed was evil. Franklin thinks for a moment, and a concerned look crosses over his face. What are we going to do if he does come back? We'll be honest with him. (laughs) Are you serious? We can't tell him the truth. Perhaps not the whole truth, but as much as we need to. Alfred grins. Enough to intrigue him. 
Think about the advancements we will make with a cooperative human subject. <laughs> if he doesn't decide to kill us first. Yes, not killing us is a prerequisite. That's why I'll do the talking. Franklin's recollection of the previous evening is interrupted when he hears a loud beeping sound that startles him. He sets the plaid rag down on the counter and hurries to a tablet device from where the sound is coming. He swipes the screen and displays a nervous expression. Oh shit. He rushes to his car and peels away. Tears stream down Claire's face as she looks up at Ski Mask, impaled on the wall, likely dead. All because of her. She has already spent a considerable amount of time trying to pull him down. At first she was simply too short to reach him properly. After finding a step stool, she discovered that she was not strong enough to get him down on her own. There has to be something I can do. An alarm blares, followed by a security panel dropping down from the east wing ceiling. A startled Claire focuses on the monitor with red flashing borders, showing the road outside of the fortress facade. A car pulls up, stops, and a man gets out. Realizing there's nothing she can do to help Ski Mask by herself, Claire races through the east wing to the staircase and dashes up the stairs to the corridor where all seven dogs sit waiting for her. She sprints to the main security panel and watches the man outside scurry about trying to figure out how to get to the fake house. She presses an intercom button. Who are you? She can see him startle. Um, uh, hello, I'm, I'm, I'm Franklin Grimm. What do you want? Uh, is there a man here who calls himself Ski Mask? Knowing he can be seen, but unsure where the cameras are, he holds up his tablet device and turns from side to side. Judging from the signals I'm receiving, he's in trouble. I can help him. I can save him. A sense of hope rushes through Claire. On the ground to your right is a bulkhead door. Do you see it? Franklin looks around and sees the sloping door. It's wooden and not easy to spot as it is painted green and brown. I see it. Open it. He opens the wood door and is surprised to see another door underneath it. This one is steel with a large handle and number pad next to it. When you hear the buzz, pull it open and get in here. Hurry! Upon hearing the buzz, he opens the heavy door and hurries down the concrete staircase below. It leads him to an 8 by 8 foot concrete tunnel with a string of overhead lights above. It ends at another concrete staircase that leads to another bulkhead door. He pushes the bulkhead door open and see that it enters into a lovely courtyard. He has no time to take in the view as he is greeted by a frantic petite woman who grabs him by the arm. She rushes him through the courtyard, into the house, down a corridor, and into a dungeon-like area. Franklin feels in a bit of a daze as she pulls him down a winding passageway to where Ski Mask hangs limp, with a large spike through his chest. Holy shit! Help me get him down! Together, they are able to pull the spring-loaded trap back far enough to remove the blade spike from Ski Mask's chest, causing him to fall to the ground in a heap. I think he's dead. Yes, but help me. Franklin pushes Ski Mask up into a sitting position. Hold him up. 
Claire puts all of her weight against Ski Mask's back, propping him up as Franklin pulls a small flash drive-like device out of his pocket. He presses a button on the device, illuminating the tip with a red glow. He holds the glowing tip to the base of Ski Mask's skull. A few seconds elapse and Ski Mask lets out a series of loud coughs and then starts feeling his chest where a gaping wound had once been, but now is completely healed. Ski Mask stands and takes in a breath. It worked. Again. Relief flushes over Franklin's face until he begins to realize that he's standing in what appears to be some kind of dungeon. What is this place? He looks at Ski Mask. Who the hell are you? Claire stares at Ski Mask in astonishment and then looks to Franklin. He's alive. She looks at Ski Mask. You're alive. She rushes to Ski Mask and embraces him. He steps back out of the hug. He is not happy and gives her a glare as he speaks. You're never supposed to come down here. But... He turns his attention to Franklin. And you. How the hell did you find me? The rage behind Ski Mask's eyes forced Franklin to speak quickly and truthfully. A tracking device? We, we planted a tracking device in your upper arm. Take it out. But, but without the tracking device, I would have never been able to find you. Ski Mask wraps his hand around Franklin's throat and pushes him against the cool stone wall as he speaks in slow, deliberate fashion. Take. It. Out. Yeah, of course. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll take it out right away. Chapter 2 The Hero Dakota Blackburn exits an upscale tap room. She is decked out in a navy blue evening gown and is followed by the Aussie Stuart, who is sharply dressed in a tuxedo. They speak cordially. Stuart smiles and shakes her hand. They have a few more kind words. All the while, Stuart is still holding onto her hand. He smiles again and gives her a large hug before she waves and walks away. The evening is quiet and still. The loud click of her high heels against the pavement echo in the night. She turns and disappears down a shadowy alleyway, walking deep into the darkness. She is visibly alarmed as she hears the thumping footsteps of someone quickly approaching behind her. She spins around and exhibits a look of fright as a burly, bushy-haired man plows into her, wraps his hands around her throat, and pushes her down onto the damp asphalt. The man growls and snarls as he squeezes her throat tighter. He pants, heavily exposing the stench of his putrid breath. The smell is as if he'd just finished eating rotten meat. Dakota winces and struggles without success and can feel her life beginning to seep away. Her hands paw away uselessly at the drooling, maniacal man's chest as he continues to squeeze, turning Dakota's face deep red while her eyes begin to bulge. Her flailing arms go numb and fall to the ground. As the crazed man puts the finishing touch on Dakota, the silence of the night is erupted by a loud shot, and the man's chest explodes. 
A spurt of blood shoots forward as another gunshot reverberates through the alley, accompanied by another explosion of blood, which splats over Dakota's face. The life leaves the crazy man's eyes, and he falls forward. Dakota uses all of her strength to lift her head up and sees a young man holding a smoking gun, slowly lowering it from the firing position. Stuart and several other well-dressed men and women flow into the alley. Zack Bridges, the young hero, watches as Stuart rolls the lifeless body of the crazy man to the side, exposing a wheezing and coughing Dakota. A frizzy-haired woman stands next to Zack as they hear Stuart yell out, She's okay! Jane, the frizzy-haired woman, turns and stares at Zack with concern. My God, what have you done? Jane and several others rush forward toward Dakota as Zack watches on, confused. It's as if they were angry. Yeah, I saw that nutty skirt Saki and the kisser on the boob tube. Tamale sits in his office chair and unwraps a freshly heated tamale. You want one? They're the best on this side of the state. No, thanks. Listen, kid, you saved the dame's life. You tried to thank her and she wasn't having any of it. That's kind of rude, but it's not a crime. You want my advice? Drop it. Move on. You're probably right, but I, I don't know. I just want to talk to her. Oh, it's your dime. Zack drops his head as he speaks. He's having a difficult time dealing with everything. I'm no hero. I'm just a regular Joe Schmo. I never shot anybody before. I just saw somebody in trouble and I tried to help. I, I killed that man. The news reported that he had a history of violence. He was suspected of having killed women in the past and then robbing them, but they were never able to prove it. So yeah, he was a bad person, but still, it was me who killed him. You did the world a favor, kid. Yeah, that's what everybody says. You would think that would make it easier to deal with, but the woman I saved, she doesn't seem grateful. Not that I expect that, but... She's not happy. Her friends aren't happy. It's all so odd. I want to move on. I do. I, but, but I feel like I can't. Not until I talk to her. If you could just find out where she lives or works. I'll do you one better than that. After you called me this morning, I did a little sniffing around. This Aussie fella, Stuart, he seems to have some sort of relationship with the Dakota dame. He hangs out at some secretive joint not too far from here. What do you say we take a skip down the road, see what we can find out? Tamale parks a block down the road from the mysterious establishment. As he and Zack approach the building, Zack's eyes light up. That's her! Outside the building, Dakota is speaking animately with Stuart. Tamale and Zack can hear everything that is being said. I understand what you're going through. No, you don't. Well, I can imagine. No, you can't. With that, she hurries away to a nearby car. Stuart watches her drive off and dejectedly enters the building. Come on, let's check this joint out. Zack follows Tamale into the building lobby. There is a horde of well-dressed people milling about. A light buzz of conversation fills the room. At the far end of the lobby is an ancient-looking wooden door with the words in Eternum scribbled on the wall next to it. Two robed men stand on either side of the door. The hoods on their robes are up 
and their faces darkened. Once Tamali and Zack enter the building, one of the well-dressed men in the lobby recognizes Zack and shouts, It's him! A hush falls over the mass of people, and they all turn to face Zack and Tamali. After an uncomfortable few seconds, Jane steps forward and scowls as she lectures Zack. How dare you show your face here? What gives you the right? What gives you the right to... Stuart steps in and places a hand on Jane's shoulder. She looks up at Stuart, stops talking, and collects herself. Stuart smiles and approaches the duo. Your name's Zack, right? Yes. Stuart looks at Tamale. And who might you be, mate? I'm his mother. Stuart smiles and fixes his attention back on Zack. May I ask what you're doing here, mate? I, I saw Dakota outside. And you'd like to speak with her? Yes. Why, if you don't mind me asking? What happened back at the hospital was so strange. I just... I don't know, I just... You think it might be therapeutic? Something like that, yeah. You and Dakota have both been through something traumatic. I can understand why you think talking to her may be beneficial to you, but... No matter how positive your intentions, you are a reminder to her of what transpired. Right now, I think she'd prefer to distance herself from that unfortunate happening. Well, I hope you can respect that. Well, well, sure. I mean, I didn't mean to cause any negative. Zack is distracted by the large wooden door opening at the far end of the room. Whoever emerged is shielded by the crowd of onlookers. Yes, of course. You meant no harm. We all understand that. And we all know you'll understand her position and respect her privacy. Okay. Sorry. Zack turns to exit and stops when he hears the gentle voice of an elderly woman. The hero. Zack turns to see a short, pear-shaped elderly woman with fluffy silver hair. She gazes deeply at Zack. There's something calming about her beady green eyes. You seek comfort. Yes, I do. She steps closer to him, takes his hand, and stares into his puppy dog eyes. A saddened expression comes over her face. You poor soul. Zack appears confused. Finally, Mona forces a friendly smile. I may be able to help you. Please come inside. You will be my special guest. Mona ushers him near the assembly of people, and two men take him by the arms as they guide him toward the wooden door. Zack looks back at Tamale with a helpless expression. Hey, where are you taking him? Tamale starts to move forward, but his path is obstructed by one of the larger men in the group who stands firmly in front of him. Tamale attempts to sidestep him and another large man emerges. This one puts his catcher's mitt of a hand on Tamale's chest to stop him from moving forward. Tamale pushes the man's arm aside. Get your paws off me, Paluka! Tamale looks past the goon and sees Zack being led into the corridor behind the wooden door, followed by the two robed men. Hey! Once again, Tamale tries to move forward toward the door, but this time the goons shove him backwards. Tamale immediately reaches for the gun concealed under his peanut brown checked tweed suit jacket. At least a dozen of the well-dressed men respond by reaching under their jackets. Tamale recognizes that he'd lose this gunfight and slowly takes his empty hand out from under his jacket. I'll tell you big shots right now. If something happens to that kid, you'll be sorry. 
Mona moves forward past the large man and stands in front of Tamale. The tender tone she used with Zack has been replaced by sharp harshness. This is a private club. You're not welcome here. Get out. Tamale stares at the stone-cold face of the old woman for a few seconds before turning around and exiting the building. He immediately peers through the window and watches as Mona enters the corridor behind the wooden door. The others all fall in line behind her. After the large door shuts behind them, he can hear the faint chant of, Mona, Mona, Mona. Tamale takes out his phone. Ski mask, I need your help. Meet me at my office. Chapter 3 Lifeline Franklin finishes the stitches in Ski Mask's upper arm. After removing the tracking device, he notices the cold stare he is receiving. It's not unlike the stare Ski Mask fixed on him when they returned the previous night, just like his father had predicted. That conversation was shorter than Franklin or his father Alfred had expected. Alfred actually suggested that Ski Mask pull up a chair, but Ski Mask refused. He simply stood and listened. Franklin never realized someone could look so menacing while holding a tail-wagging dachshund. Alfred was very articulate in explaining the renewal experiment they were working on. His life's work is how Franklin's father always described it. He went on to explain that to date, their experiments were restricted to animals only, but they had reached a point where human subjects were necessary. They never intended to experiment on Ski Mask, but he fell into their laps. They couldn't pass up the opportunity, and since it appeared to be working, it was a win-win for everybody. Ski Mask sat and contemplated for what was probably only 30 seconds, but to Franklin seemed like hours. He didn't bombard them with questions as both he and his father expected. Instead, he casually left telling them both he'd see them soon. When Alfred called out after him asking him for his name, Franklin shuddered at the response. Call me Ski Mask. Franklin tightens down the final stitch and gives Ski Mask a smile. All done. Ski Mask stares at him for another long moment before speaking. You never thought to tell me you fitted me with a tracking device? You left rather abruptly, and honestly, we thought it might not go over well with you. Listen, as far as we know, we only have a few hours to administer the renewal procedure, or we can't bring you back. Without a tracking device, how would we know if you got yourself killed? How would we find you? I'm not sure why you're so opposed to it. I like my privacy. What else didn't you tell me? Claire interrupts. Wait a minute. So he was really... dead? Franklin looks at Ski Mask for permission to proceed. Ski Mask doesn't speak, but does nothing to indicate objection, so Franklin looks at Claire and continues. Uh, yes, he was dead and I brought him back. You brought him back to life? Yes, there's a short window after death where we can renew a subject. He just had a gigantic hole in his chest. What happened to that? The renewal process heals wounds, regenerates tissues. It's the most remarkable invention in history. Claire looks at Ski Mask. How long have you been doing this? 
since yesterday when he killed me. It was an accident! Franklin looks to Claire. He, he ran out in the middle of the road. My father and I never had the opportunity to experiment on humans before, and he was dead anyway. You've been dead twice in the past day? He killed me yesterday. You killed me today. Maybe you two should team up. He looks at Franklin with a sinister gaze. Is there anything else you're withholding from me? No, nothing that pertains to you. Oh wait, Subject M. He has a tracking device too. His name is Max. Ski Mask whistles and pats the couch. Max jumps up next to him. Take it out. Uh, right away. Franklin immediately begins the simple procedure of removing the tracking device from Max. He looks around and sees that he is encircled by six other dogs. Oh, lots of dogs. He has a hard time reading their demeanors. I hope they're all friendly. As long as I don't tell them otherwise. Franklin smiles nervously and goes back to work on Max, but jumps when he feels a furry body rub against his back. What the f- He turns to see the cats, Darkness and Scarface, both rubbing vigorously against him. The cats seem to have taken a liking to you. Uh, I'm, I'm not very fond of cats. Ski Mask snaps at Franklin. Stop right there. I had better never hear you say one cross word about my cats. No, no, never. And be nice to them. Yes, yes. Franklin turns and spends a moment awkwardly patting the cats on their heads. Uh, good kitty, good kitty. Franklin turns back and continues his work on Max as he speaks. I'm, I'm sorry that we didn't tell you about the tracking device. I, I hope you can understand why. I heard your explanation. It was deceitful. You should have been straightforward with me. I'll expect you to be so from now on. Of course. Is there a limit to how many times the renewal will work on him? If the results from every other animal we've tested is any indication, eight. The life you were born with, and eight renewals. Nine lives. Ski Mask pets Max slowly, which relaxes him as Franklin removes the tracking device and begins stitching him up. Since we can no longer track you and will have no way of knowing if you die or not, I'd like to implant you with an auto-renewal chip that we've been experimenting with. We've only tested it a handful of times, but it does appear to function as we had hoped. Elaborate. You won't need me to administer the procedure. The, the chip will take care of the renewal on its own. No tracking device? None. No add-ons of any kind. We haven't gotten that far yet. It auto-renewals. That's all. Okay. There is one caveat. For some reason that we haven't figured out yet, the auto-renewal chip only works five times. Since you're already on your third life, it will get you to life eight. But it won't work after that. You'll need me to do the procedure manually for that last lifeline. Franklin's face lights up. Lifeline? I like that. I, I think that might be what we wind up calling this thing. He shifts his attention back to Ski Mask. Anyway, hopefully you can stay alive a little longer than you have recently. Ski Mask doesn't respond and continues to stare at Franklin, who carefully goes on. I'm sure you'll understand if I tell you that my father and I have a lot of questions for you and your experiences thus far. You are our first human subject, after all. Yes, I understand. And I'll get in touch with you soon. Thank you. Franklin stands and Ski Mask turns to Claire. Show him out. 
As Claire walks away with Franklin, Ski Mask's phone rings. He sees the caller is Tamale Jones and answers, Yeah, I'll be right there. Ski Mask hangs up and looks back at the corridor to the east wing. The freezer failsafe was only supposed to open the freezer door in the event that he got locked in. Some wires obviously got crossed. With a little troubleshooting, it should be an easy fix. While he's at it, he'll move the failsafe lever further from the chute. Design error. You live and you learn. As Ski Mask makes his way toward the main door, Claire returns. I'm leaving. He walks past her. I'm sorry. He stops, turns, and shoots her a glare. We'll talk later. Claire's nerves start to twitch as she watches him leave. She lets out an uneasy deep breath. Jeepers. Chapter 4 The Meeting There is a knock on the door. Dakota Blackburn sits on her couch staring at the floor, depressed. She ignores the knock initially, but then there's another knock, and another. The persistent knocker causes her to rise. She listlessly walks to the door and opens it. She is a little shocked and dismayed to see Zack. Will you please leave me alone? She begins shutting the door. Zack speaks quickly to get his words out before the door closes. I met Mona! Dakota opens the door wider and looks at Zack with intrigue. Okay. Would you like something to drink? Zack seems nervous as he sits down in a chair in Dakota's living room. He runs his hand through his short hair several times as she fills his glass from a pitcher of lemon water. You seem anxious. A little bit, I guess. He picks up the glass and takes a sip as he and Dakota study each other, trying to figure out what to say. Zack begins. I'm not sure where to start. Dakota interrupts. It's all quite overwhelming. Zack nods. Dakota's stone expression finally breaks and she lets out a faint smile that seems genuine. Why don't we start at the beginning? Where are you from? Uh, I was born in Nashville, but my parents moved around a lot, so I've lived all over the Midwest. How long have you been in this area? Uh, about two years. Do you like it here? I do. Uh, how about you? Where are you from? Dakota doesn't hesitate. I've lived here my whole life. Really? Dakota nods. I was born here. I was raised here. I went to... Dakota can't finish her sentence before Zack punches her, square in the jaw, knocking her to the floor. She is disoriented as Zack pounces on top of her and roughly wraps his hands around her throat. He starts squeezing with all of his might. Dakota instinctively reaches up, defensively grabbing at his shirt and sliding her hands around his face. Zack easily moves his head away and squeezes harder, weakening her defenses as her face turns red and her eyes begin to bulge. Zack looks maniacal as he continues to squeeze. Dakota's arms fall limp to her side as the life slowly seeps from her face. Zack continues to choke her even after it's clear that she's dead. He wants to be sure. There can be no mistake about this. Finally, he stops and looks at her closely. 
He slaps her face lightly on both sides. Can you hear me? He slaps her lightly again. Can you hear me? Dakota is dead, but Zack wraps his hands around her throat and uses all of his remaining strength to squeeze once again. Her expression does not change. Zack lets out a yell while he squeezes her already crushed windpipe with more force. After a moment, he stops and looks at her. He grabs her wrist to feel for a pulse. He lays his head on her chest, listening for a heartbeat. He looks into her dead eyes and then collapses backward. Zack takes in several deep breaths and then smiles. Chapter 5 The Laughing Place Tamali was waiting for Ski Mask outside of his office and briefed him during the drive to the Inaternum building. After pulling up, they both get out. As Tamali takes his gun out from under his jacket and checks to make sure it's loaded, Ski Mask turns and speaks to him. I'll handle this. You can't go in there alone, there's too many of them. Go back to your office. And I want you to look through your files. Find me the most dangerous, high-paying job you can find. The type that no rational person would do for any amount of money. Tamale nods. Okay, Ski Mask. Tamale has known Ski Mask long enough not to argue with him. He suppresses his reluctance, gets back into his car, and drives away. Ski Mask opens the door and steps into the lobby. Two mysterious cloaked figures stand on each side of the wooden door. Ski Mask ignores them, walks briskly to the wooden door, and begins to open it. One of the robed men makes the mistake of putting his hand on Ski Mask's shoulder to stop him. Ski Mask drives the heel of his hand into the man's nose, shattering it instantly, and dropping him to the ground like a sack of potatoes. The second cloaked man advances on Ski Mask and is greeted with a kick to the crotch that doubles him over, giving Ski Mask easy access to his neck, which he hastily snaps like a twig. Ski Mask walks rapidly down the stone corridor, passing all of the lit torches on the wall. He follows the corridor as it bends to the left. After another hundred feet, it ends at a loft overlooking a medieval-like sanctuary. Stone pillars stand in each corner. Several large scythes, exactly what one would expect the Grim Reaper to hold, decorate the walls. The room is modestly lit with an assembly of torches. A congregation of at least fifty cloaked people stand on both sides of an aisle as a single robed man walks toward the old woman, Mona. She is flanked by two cloaked men. She too is cloaked, but her hood is down. When the robed man reaches her, he kneels. She places both of her hands on his shoulders, looks up, and begins speaking in Latin. Ski Mask notices a nearby metal spiral staircase that leads down to the sanctuary. He quietly descends the stairs and stands at the top of the aisle. Mona speaks. In Aeternum. She lowers the hood from the robed man, revealing his identity. Ski Mask recognizes that the man is the hero. He calls out, Zack. Upon hearing his voice, the room of cloaked figures all quickly turn towards Ski Mask. Mona recognizes him. 
Dos mis. It's the Reaper. Her statement causes a stir among the cloak congregation. They begin looking back and forth between Mona, themselves, and Ski Mask, while several can be heard whispering, The Reaper. Zack rises and slowly walks to Ski Mask. Ski Mask motions to Zack. Come with me if you want to live. But I don't. Mona speaks loudly, her voice echoing throughout the sanctuary. What possible gift can we bestow upon the Reaper? In an unexpected quick motion that catches Ski Mask off guard, Zack removes a short sickle from under his robe and buries it into Ski Mask's throat. Before he can react, the cloaked congregation moves forward, all removing similar sickles from under their robes. They encircle Ski Mask and begin chopping into him until he is a lifeless, bloody mess. The congregation parts as Mona walks down the aisle and looks down at Ski Mask. It is an honor to bestow upon you the very gift that you have bestowed upon so many. Et nos gratias ago tibi. We thank you. Ski Mask's eyes open, causing the majority of the congregation to gasp. He rises and sidekicks the nearest cloaked figure out of the way, clearing his path to the largest scythe on the wall, which he removes. He turns and swings, immediately lopping off the heads of three of the nearest cloaked people. He continues wielding the scythe in a graceful motion of murderous beauty, mowing through the congregation like a field of rye. Heads, arms, legs, and torsos pile up as Ski Mask rips through them using the scythe in a graphic, artful rhythm. As he plows through the mysterious people, he notices that the majority of them are not fighting back. More so, they are not resisting. Most have dropped their sickles to the ground and patiently wait their turn to succumb to his wrath, of which Ski Mask obliges again and again and again. When there no longer appears to be anything to swing at, Ski Mask stops. With the exception of his heavy breathing, the room is silent. He scans the area for any life. Only three figures remain standing. Mona, Stuart, and Zack all stand at the end of the aisle. Ski Mask marches up to them. He stops in front of Zack, who doesn't dare challenge Ski Mask to a duel, but rather raises his head proudly, even pushing his throat out slightly, obviously resigned to his fate. One swing of the scythe sends Zack's head flinging across the room. Ski Mask moves closer to Mona and Stuart. Mona's beady green eyes sparkle as she smiles at Ski Mask. The Reaper deserves an explanation, if he so desires. Ski Mask shrugs. I'm curious. Mona sits down on a small stone stairwell near the aisle. I grew up in the northern suburbs of Chicago. The winters were so cold, frigid. When I was 12 years old, I was playing on the ice alone. My mother always warned me not to do that, but I was young and ignorant, you see, so I disregarded her warnings. One day, the ice broke, and no one was around to help me. I was trapped under the ice. I drowned. I died that day. They told me I was clinically dead for over 45 minutes before they brought me back. 
Everyone expected me to be happy to be alive. They couldn't understand the long bout of depression I went through after that. But how could they? None of them had ever been dead, like I was. None of them ever experienced where I was at. I called it my laughing place. I came out of my depression when I realized I had been blessed with a gift. The ability to show other people a quick glimpse of their laughing place. To teach them that death is not something to fear, but rather something to embrace after you've lived a full life as you are supposed to. Mona motions to Zack's head lying on the floor. When Zack saved Dakota, he changed her destiny. He spun her life cycle off into another direction. None of us knew how long her new path would be. We just knew she must live it. Whatever happens to her must be out of her control. She was expecting to be in her laughing place that night. Zack was a good boy. He thought he was helping her. He didn't realize what he had done. When I took his hands and let him glimpse his laughing place, he understood. He killed her today. Such a brave boy. He told no one until the deed was done. He took her destiny into his own hands and righted the unintended wrong, sending her back onto the path she was meant to be on. She looks back at Ski Mask. I can also see how long one will live, unless their destiny is changed. Poor Zack. Had you not changed his original path, he would have lived to be 103 years old. Life is short, but for a young man who just glimpsed his laughing place, it would have felt like an eternity. You saved him. She gazes around at the massacred congregation. You saved all of them. You are a true angel. An angel of death. Mona rises and walks to Ski Mask. She takes his hands into hers and looks deep into his blue eyes. Her eyes twinkle as she speaks. I've never seen one like you. The option of so many lives. You don't fear much. But you fear the light. She smiles. There's nothing to fear. You have sensed the peace within the light. It's real. It's everything it appears to be. And more. So much more. She squeezes his hands as she continues to speak. There are many lives ahead of you for me to see through. Your destiny is foggy, but you have more work to do. So many more to send to their laughing place. Ski Mask is too close to Mona to swing the scythe, so he simply shoves the tip of the scythe into her carotid artery. At first a look of shock overcomes her face, but her expression quickly changes to joy once she realizes what happened, and she smiles. As blood rockets from her neck, she rests her hand on Ski Mask's hand. Her final words sound as if she's gargling, but Ski Mask understands them. Thank you. She falls to the floor and Ski Mask turns his attention to Stuart, 
who is gently crying tears of joy as he looks down at Mona and then around at the mangled congregation. So beautiful, mate. He looks to Ski Mask. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anything I can do to express my gratitude? Chapter 6 The Angel of Death Alfred and Franklin Grimm are surprised when they hear a knock on their door. This is their secret lab, after all. No one is supposed to know about it. Franklin looks up at the security monitor that reveals the identity of the mysterious knocker. It's him. Franklin hurries to the door and opens it. Ski Mask steps in, followed by a jolly fellow wearing a tuxedo. This is Stuart. Stuart holds up his hand in a wave and smiles gleefully. Good day, mates. You said all the animals you tested on before always had a total of nine lives. You assume it's the same with humans, but you don't have the evidence to be sure. Stuart here is going to help us find out. Stuart lies on the gurney. His tuxedo jacket is off. His shirt is unbuttoned. Several electrodes are placed on his chest with wires running to an ECG machine that is beeping in rhythm with his heartbeat. The sleeve on his right arm is rolled up. He looks at Franklin Grimm, who is holding a syringe. Will there be pain? Franklin shakes his head. No. Good. Not a big fan of pain? As Schemas talks to Stuart, Alfred and Franklin listen as he answers some of the questions they have wondered about. They are fascinated. You'll find yourself in a dark room. One side of the room will be a wall of beautiful light. You'll be tempted to enter the light. You need to hold off on that temptation for this experiment to work. Understand? Stuart nods. I won't fail you, mate. Eventually, on the other side of the room, two ovals will appear, and you'll be able to see us through them. Once the doc hits you with the renewal, er, uh, the lifeline, you'll be thrust toward the ovals and back here with us, okay? Alfred seems confused. Lifeline? Franklin nods. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about that later. Ski Mask looks seriously at Stuart. Ready? Stuart nods. Franklin injects Stuart. Stuart's eyelids grow heavy and close, followed by the flat line and steady tone from the ECG machine. Franklin pulls out the renewal device and Ski Mask holds up a hand. Give him a second to adjust to his surroundings. It's his first time there. Franklin looks at Alfred, who shrugs and then waits patiently for Ski Mask's approval, which comes in the way of a nod. Franklin places the device at the base of Stuart's skull, and within seconds, Stuart's eyes blast open, and he takes in a loud gulp of air. It takes him a moment to catch his breath. Holy dooly! Franklin smiles. Welcome to your second life. Oh, I've never seen black like that before. He looks at Ski Mask and grabs his hand. And that wall of light! Pure splendor! You ready for more? Please! Franklin injects him again, and then revives him. Welcome to your third life. My god, the light! I can't explain the beauty. It's so bright, but it doesn't hurt my eyes. It soothes them. It soothes me. Okay, put me back. The process is administered again. Welcome to your fourth life. Alfred steps forward. 
How are you feeling? Good, fine, but I want to go back. Why is that? I want to see the light. When I look into it, all my worries disappear. I'm stripped down to pure joy. Nothing against you blokes, but I'm starting to get depressed when you bring me back. This is even knowing I won't be here long. Do you mean to tell me that you'd rather be dead than alive? Stuart leans in toward Alfred. You don't understand, mate. It's there that I'm alive. Alfred steps back and scratches his chin. He ponders as Franklin starts the process again. Proceeding, Franklin injects him once again and then revives him. Welcome to your fifth life. Thank you, mate. Your welcomes are appreciated. Franklin injects him again and then revives him. Welcome to your sixth life. How are you? Oh, physically, I'm fine. Mentally, I'm getting excited. About what? what? Not having to come back here? Franklin injects him again and then revives him. Welcome to your seventh life. Alfred speaks to Stuart with a curious expression. The light. You don't know what lies beyond it. Why aren't you afraid? Stuart smiles. Fear is an emotion I no longer have when I look into the light. He looks at Ski Mask. Is it that way for you too, mate? Ski Mask thinks a moment. I'm getting there. Franklin alerts Stuart. Okay, here we go again. Franklin injects him and then revives him. Welcome to your eighth life. Alfred moves closer to Stuart and speaks seriously. He's having a difficult time grasping Stuart's attitude. To clarify, given the choice of coming back here or going into the light, Stuart interrupts him. It's not even close, mate. It's not even close. One day you'll understand what I mean. Stuart looks back at Franklin. Keep it coming, mate. Franklin injects him again and then revives him. And finally, welcome to your ninth life. How are you feeling? Absolutely bonza. Franklin looks at Alfred and Ski Mask for some clarification as to what that means, but they both shrug. Stuart recognizes the confusion. Oh, sorry, mate. That's Australian for quite great. Franklin nods and speaks. Ah, well, if our calculations are correct, this is your ninth life. Your final life. After this, you won't be coming back. I like you blokes, I do. So don't take offense when I say, oh, I'm ready to enter the light. Okay. Ski Mask steps closer to Stuart. This is all in theory. If you can come back, come back. If you can't come back, be free to go into the light. I understand, mate. And since this will likely be it for me, I'd like the Angel of Death to do the honors. Franklin shrugs and hands the syringe to Ski Mask. I've never killed somebody like this before. Stuart smiles. So glad to have met you, mate. Stuart lies back on the gurney closes his eyes and smiles. My laughing place awaits in Eternum. Ski Mask injects Stuart. The smile remains on his face as the ECG flatlines. Franklin administers the lifeline device, but there is no successful renewal this time. Stuart remains dead. Alfred lets out a breath. Nine lives it is, regardless of the life form. Ski Mask moves from the gurney and stands towering over the sitting Grimms. There's gonna be some new rules around here. 
Franklin and Alfred look at each other with confusion. Uh, new rules? What precisely do you mean? You won't be doing any further animal testing. Am I clear? Franklin scoffs. No animal testing? Are you kidding? Ridiculous! <laughs> he lets out a laugh of absurdity. Schemash shouts at him. What the hell are you laughing about? Franklin jumps and is visibly shaken from the sudden rage coming from Ski Mask. I'm, I'm sorry. Don't you ever laugh at me in that condescending way again. Franklin nods quickly. Alfred, keeping cool, calm, and collected as usual, leans over and rubs his son on the shoulder to relax him. Alfred speaks calmly to Ski Mask. You've made yourself perfectly clear. Good! If I may ask, how do you expect us to continue conducting our experiments? I'm your answer to everything, Alfred. Ski Mask looks to Franklin and begins speaking to him sternly. You had no idea how lucky you were when you killed me. You reckless driving son of a bitch! Ski Mask starts pacing back and forth and slaps a nearby tray of medical tools scattering them across the floor. Franklin holds up his hands as he pleads with Ski Mask. I'm sorry. I am so sorry. Please shut up. Or do you want to patronize me again? I, I, I'm sorry, I, it, it won't happen again. As Schemas continues to pace, Alfred presents himself as the soothing voice of reason. Schemas, you'll have to forgive, Franklin. We're all still getting to know each other. There will undoubtedly be occasional growing pains such as what we have experienced today. May I suggest that we all relax? We are a team and we've had quite a breakthrough today. It's a day for celebration not confrontation. This makes sense to Ski Mask. His pacing slows until he screeches a nearby chair closer to them and swings it around backwards. He sits down and rests his forearms on the back of the chair. Franklin speaks genuinely. I'm truly sorry. Ski Mask acknowledges him with a nod and then looks back at Alfred. I have a plan. Ski Mask's phone rings. He looks at the caller and sees that it's Tamale Jones. Ski Mask holds a finger up to the Grimms and answers the call. Tamale, the situation's been handled. It's all good. You do? Now? Okay, I'll be right there. He hangs up and addresses the Grimms as he stands. I have something to take care of, but I'll be in touch soon. Ski Mask exits the laboratory, and Franklin lets out a sigh of relief as does his father. In the future, it would be wise not to make him angry. Chapter 7 Bloodsucker Ski Mask enters Tamale's office. Tamale is throwing an empty, greasy paper plate into a wastebasket. He is wiping his face with a napkin when he notices Ski Mask. Ah, there he is. Tamale brushes any remaining microscopic Tamale bits off his hands as he speaks. You said you were looking for a payload and didn't mind if the job wasn't exactly duck soup. He motions toward his client sitting in the chair across from his desk. This little daisy here is Leanna. Ski Mask looks at the client. She is thin-framed. He gauges her to be approximately five foot one in height. Her eyes are black like polished coal and stand out against her fair skin. Her corn-silk blonde hair is tied up in a messy bun. Her attire is casual. 
a tan, loose chiffon, long-sleeved blouse, a pair of army green chinos rolled halfway up her calves, and fluorescent yellow tennis shoes. The most unusual thing about this client? She is clearly no more than ten years old. Leanna rises from her chair and walks with confidence to Ski Mask. She fixes her eyes on him, almost as though she's staring straight through him. You have an aura about you. She pauses, closes her eyes, and takes in a breath. When she reopens her eyes, her expression holds a hint of uncertainty. Her thin lips pucker slightly as she concentrates. There's something about you that I can't quite place. It's not... ordinary. She studies him closely for another moment and then speaks assuredly. He'll do. Ski Mask watches as the dainty child ambles back to the front of Tamale's desk and delicately places herself into the chair. Ski Mask looks back and forth between the child and Tamale, confused. He shrugs slightly. So what's the job? Tamale moves in closer to Ski Mask and takes a moment before asking him the question. Do you believe in vampires? The end. The Nine Lives of Ski Mask continues with Life for Vampires. The Nine Lives of Ski Mask, Life for Vampires. Chapter 1 Deep Cuts. I don't know how many times I've told you never to go into the East Wing. Ski Mask is furious. Never! Do you know what the concept of never is? Never means never. Pulsating veins can be seen throughout his reddened face. His eyes rage with anger as he continues shouting. It doesn't mean occasionally. It doesn't mean under certain circumstances. It means never. He begins pacing as he yells. Are you stupid? Are you? His fury-filled holler echoes throughout the main room. Clara winces with every word. Dempsey and Floppy have taken up refuge behind Claire's legs. Madeline and Max watch on, both whining slightly, as Ski Mask's outburst continues. The rest of the dogs have cowered away into other rooms. What the hell am I going to do with you now? How can I trust you? He takes an aggressive step toward Claire, who starts backing up. Upon his movement toward Claire, Madeline's whine grows louder and then quickly transforms into a bellowing roar of a bark. Ski Mask stops in his tracks and looks back at Madeline. They lock eyes for a few seconds before Madeline backs down and whimpers loudly, which causes Ski Mask to relax. Now that the tension has decreased, Max feels comfortable letting out several yippy barks as a late backup gesture to Madeline. I'm sorry. Ski Mask turns and looks at Claire. She is shaking with fear as tears stream down her face. Her words are choppy as she speaks. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I was worried. I thought you might be in trouble. I'm so sorry. She bursts out crying, turns, and runs down the south wing corridor to the kitchen, followed by Dempsey and Floppy. Ski Mask lets out a breath and looks back at Madeline, who continues to whine softly. 
He approaches her and gives her a gentle pat on her big head. It's okay. Good girl. Her heavy tail begins to wag, knowing all is well between them now. He walks down the north wing toward his bedroom. He can see the silhouette of Slick in the doorway. Slick quickly runs deeper into the bedroom, out of sight as Ski Mask approaches. When he enters the room, Ski Mask sees no dogs. Obviously, they're still frightened. He speaks in a gentle voice, but loud enough for them to hear him, wherever they are. Everything's fine. Come on out. Slick, Trip, and Snowman all pop out from under his bed in the loft and race down the stairs. Ski Mask bends down and begins loving on all of them. Madeline and Max join in. It's okay. I'm not mad at any of you. I didn't mean to scare you. They dance around excitedly and begin to playfully wrestle with one another. Even Madeline joins in, but quickly yelps and limps away from the group after Slick puts too much of his weight on her. Careful with her, she's old. Ski Mask walks to Madeline and rubs her back hip. She shows her appreciation by giving him a face lick that nearly gives him whiplash. A rare sense of guilt comes over Ski Mask. He didn't like making Madeline upset or scaring the other dogs. And then there was Claire. He'd seen her cry before, but never in the fearful state she was in. Fearful of him. He rises and heads toward the south wing. Upon entering the kitchen, he is greeted by Dempsey and Floppy. He bends down and assures them that all is fine. He looks up at Claire, who is standing on an apple cart in front of the sink with her back to him. Listen, I'm sorry. I went overboard back there. Claire turns and faces him. Her face is beaming. She is clearly relieved, but it's something else that Ski Mask notices. Claire is holding a large knife. Her sleeve is rolled up and her arm is covered in blood. What the hell? Ski Mask hurries toward her. What did you do? Claire is confused at first, but then looks down at where his eyes have traveled and realizes what he is referring to. Oh no! No, it's not what you think. I'm not trying to commit suicide. What happened? I just cut myself. Ski Mask grabs her arm and inspects the large slice across the top of her forearm. He then notices several similar old scars in the same region. Intentionally. What? When I get really, really worked up about something, I cut my arm. It relaxes me. It relaxes you? She shrugs. Some people do yoga. I cut my arm. That's weird. She shrugs again. Ski Mask studies her for a moment and seems intrigued. Does it really help? For me, it does. I don't do it often. It's rare that my emotions ever get to the point where I feel the need to. But today was one of those days. Sorry. Claire looks up at him, and Ski Mask begins to lose himself in those bright, gentle eyes of hers. And for the briefest of moments, he gets the urge to wipe the drying tears from her face. His hand even begins to drift upwards before he quickly snaps himself out of it and steps back. He looks away from her clears his throat, takes a deep breath, and moves on to a new subject. I'm going away for a little while on a job. Not sure how long it'll be. Claire smiles and nods. I'll take care of everything. Ski Mask turns and begins to exit the kitchen, but then stops and looks back at her. I know you will. He exits and heads back to his bedroom where he pulls a large travel bag out of a closet and begins placing a few items in it. 
The bag is already partially packed. Ski Mask travels often for various jobs and always has a bag mostly packed and ready to go in case something urgent comes up. After adding a few more items, he zips the bag up and takes a seat on his sofa in front of the aquarium. He relaxes watching the school of graceful elephant nose fish swim peacefully in their safe haven. Ski Mask looks down at Madeline, who has climbed up onto the sofa next to him. She lays her giant head on his lap. He rubs the back of her neck while he thinks back upon his unusual encounter earlier in the night. His encounter with a vampire. Chapter 2 Leanna Pureline vampire known as Catherine has recently obtained a historic mansion. The location of the mansion is under tight wraps. I need you to acquire the location for me and then run interference while I unknowingly take possession of an item within the mansion. Schemas stares at the little girl with bewilderment. You're saying that you're a vampire? Leanna rolls her eyes as Tamale steps forward. I figured her for a screwball too until she- Before Tamale can finish his sentence, he is pinned against the wall by an invisible force, catapulted up to the ceiling, and suspended in midair. Oh, until she proved me otherwise. Ski Mask looks at Leanna, who is staring through him with her black eyes. Impressive. For a little girl. Leanna scowls at Ski Mask. You have some nerve. Her black eyes glow as tension fills the room for a few seconds before she relaxes. But that might come in handy. Leanna looks up at Tamale and he is gently lowered back down to his seat. He lets out a nervous breath and adjusts his hat. Thanks. Leanna keeps her eyes fixed on Ski Mask. Are you satisfied? Sure. Are you up for the task? Sounds like a simple job. It's a suicide mission. Normally, I would recommend a team of at least six people for such a mission in hopes that one member will live long enough to complete the assignment. Personally, I don't see how you can survive this undertaking alone, but Mr. Jones insists that you are... special. This Catherine, you say she's a pure-line vampire? Born of two other vampires. Are you a pure-line vampire as well? I am. You look young. A pure-line vampire ages one year for every ten human years. So that makes you about 100? She smiles. Almost. Did you and Tamale talk compensation? We did. So while this job ain't exactly a breeze, we're talking a lot of Mazuma. Enough clams to make you pretty damn filthy rich. But like she mentioned, uh, odds are better than not that when it's all said and done, you'll be taking the big sleep. Tamale rises, walks to Ski Mask, and hands him a slip of paper. Ski Mask's eyes widen as he sees the figure scrawled across it. Do we have an agreement? Ski Mask nods. Leanna floats up from her chair and never touches the floor as she glides towards Ski Mask, maintaining eye level with him the entire way. Once she reaches him, she sustains her floating position and shakes his hand. What kind of object are you after in this mansion? That's my business. Focus on your business. Ski Mask shakes his head in frustration. Fine. 
You're an ornery sort, aren't you? I wouldn't consider myself ornery. That doesn't necessarily mean that's not the case. Tamale chimes in. Uh, you're a bit ornery. Schemash shoots Tamale a disapproving look. Sorry, but it's true. I agree with the vampire. Leanna glares at Tamale and hisses at him harshly. The vampire? Correct me if I misunderstood you, Mr. Jones, but did you just refer to me as the vampire? Tamale stammers nervously. I, 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 uh, I, I have a name. Tamale gulps. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Leanna's scowl transforms into a grin as she giggles. You should have seen your face. She points at Tamale and lets out a playful cackle. It's clear that neither Tamale nor Schemask find her joke amusing. She rolls her eyes a bit and shakes her head. So serious. Okay, back to business. She scribbles something down on a small piece of paper, folds it, and hands it to Schemask. That's an address. I'm going to set up an appointment for you tomorrow with a man named Mason. He and his albino sidekick make a handsome living from tracking the whereabouts and inner workings of the Pure Line vampire community. They'll have the information you seek. Contact me when your meeting concludes. She floats to the door and turns back to the two men before exiting. Good night, gentlemen. Chapter 3 Mason and the Albino The front door to the black glassed building is flanked by two Mr. Universe bodybuilder types in tight black t-shirts. A stringy man in a suit stands before them and greets Ski Mask in a professional manner. We've been expecting you. He looks down at the small duffel bag that Ski Mask is carrying and nods to one of the muscle men who does a quick scan of the bag with a metal detecting wand. When the wand doesn't detect anything, the stringy man motions Ski Mask through the door. Right this way. The stringy man guides Ski Mask to an attractive woman in her late fifties wearing a dark dress suit. Belinda, this is the gentleman who has a scheduled meeting with Mr. Mason. Ski Mask follows Belinda up a wide staircase covered with red stair carpet. The staircase winds partially just before ending at the second floor landing. She leads him to a large golden double door which she opens. She motions for Ski Mask to enter the room and then casually shuts the door behind him. The room is dark with the only light emanating from a lamp on a desk about 30 feet in front of him. Behind the desk sits Mason, a man in his 40s wearing a black fedora with light gray trim. His mustache and sideburns are manicured in a gunslinger style that clashes with his Hawaiian shirt. Have a seat. The albino female standing menacingly behind Mason comes into view. Her straight white hair ends just before her shoulders. Her pants, boots, and fingerless gloves are solid black. The outfit is topped off with a long leather jacket. Her arms are folded and her pale bluish pink eyes stay fixed on Ski Mask as he sits down in one of the two chairs positioned in front of Mason's desk. Ski Mask glares back at the albino. Their eyes lock in a standoff for several seconds. Ski Mask reluctantly breaks his stare from the looming albino and gives his attention to Mason. There's a vampire named Catherine. 
Pureline vampire. They don't like to be referred to as just vampires. Fine, there's a Pureline vampire named Catherine, and you want the location of her new mansion. Schemast reaches under his coat, causing the albino to move her hands under her jacket with blinding speed. She stops at that point, but is clearly ready to spring into action if Schemask makes any suspicious moves. Schemask smirks. Relax, albino. He slows his movement and removes a thick wad of cash tightly encased in clear plastic and tosses it on Mason's desk. And then another. And then another. Mason stares at the three large packs of money on the table, grins, and then moves his eyes to Schemask. You're working for Leanna, aren't you? Schemask doesn't respond. The question is rhetorical. Obviously, Mason knows. I'm afraid I can't help you. Schemask reaches into the bag, extracts another wrapped batch of cash, and tosses it onto the desk with the others. We've been paid handsomely not to divulge this information to anyone until after tomorrow, midnight. Come back then and we'll talk. I need the info now. Of course you do. Schemas takes one more bundle out of the duffel bag and slams it down onto the desk while staring at Mason. This merely amuses Mason. We're getting paid double whatever anyone else offers, so by all means, offer some more. Schemas stands and directs his gaze from Mason to the albino, who still stands in the ready position. His urge is to obtain the information with strong-arm tactics. He'd love to see what this albino brings to the dance. But Leanna was very clear that if they refused, he should just leave it at that and contact her. He continues to stare back at the albino for several long seconds before he speaks. I do have one question. The albino cocks her head slightly, knowing the question will be directed at her. Does the carpet match the drapes? The albino's pale eyes fill with rage, and she's clearly on the verge of making a move towards Ski Mask when Mason holds up his hand and she quickly regains her composure. Ski Mask snares before he turns and exits. Chapter 4 House of Albinos Per her instructions, Schemask meets Leanna at the top of a cliff overlooking a sweeping field. She stands at the edge of the cliff looking down. See those lights? Schemask takes a position next to her and notices what appear to be a row of hanging lights from poles. The poles line a walkway which leads to a door carved into the starting slope of a hill. The House of Albinos. It's an abandoned military base that the Albinos took possession of years ago and made a home out of it. The lack of pigmentation makes the Albino more difficult for us to sense, thus they're well suited for tracking. Albino animals may have a challenging time surviving in the wild, but this brood does just fine. Actually, as long as there are sufficient places to hide, carnivores seem to catch albino and common colored animals at approximately the same rate. Without appropriate hiding places, the albino may be more susceptible to attack, but sometimes predators will give them a pass, probably thinking they're too weird looking to eat. Leanna looks at Schemask. She seems impressed. Well, look at that big brain of yours. She looks back at the house of albinos. There are 12 of them. All albino siblings, 11 males and one female. 
I believe you met her. Leanna reaches out. May I have your hand, please? Schemas takes a breath of annoyance and obliges her by holding out his hand. She takes it into hers, closes her eyes, and appears to mentally drift away for a moment. You two didn't quite hit it off, did you? She smiles. As expected. Leanna is about to release his hand and then gets a curious expression over her face. She squeezes his hand tighter and then opens her eyes and looks at him inquisitively while smiling brightly. Who is Claire? Schemas jerks his hand away and switches the dialogue back to the main topic. You knew damn well they weren't going to take that money. Why the hell did you bother sending me in there? You like to antagonize people, even when it's not in your best interest. Your charming personality has the albino prime for attack once she notices you on the premises. That will leave Mason alone, and more vulnerable. Leanna fixes her gaze back on the entrance of the House of Albinos as she speaks. I have it on good authority that Mason and his sidekick are in the House of Albinos tonight. He has the location of Catherine's mansion on a tablet that he has on his person. I intend to gain possession of the tablet. You're a vampire. Kill him. Kill his bunny-eyed friend. Take the tablet. What do you need me for? Leanna is quick to correct him. Pure line vampire. I believe I mentioned to you that they make a living from their knowledge of the pure line vampire community. Who do you think their primary customers are? We are. If the albino is by Mason's side, I'll likely have to kill her to get to him, and I would hate to snuff out a worthwhile resource if it's not necessary. And that's where I come in. Leanna smiles. I'll do my part. She's formidable. She once killed a Pureline vampire. A stupid, bumbling Pureline vampire, but still, not an easy accomplishment. What about the other albinos? Her brothers are very protective and would come to her aid if alerted. It would be a serious issue if they were here. Leanna grins. Five are out of the country on legitimate cases. The other six I hired anonymously for a local job. It's a ploy, of course, and they should figure that out in approximately... She looks down at her Gucci wristwatch. Fifteen minutes? Let's move. Leanna and Ski Mask position themselves closer to the entrance. How do we get in? We don't. I do. And I'll be going right through the front door. I'll be tripping a slew of motion detectors along the way, but I'll be well inside the house before they go off. You just hustle down there and make sure you're close enough for the albino to see you. How the hell are you going to get in there before the motion detectors go off? Leanna looks at him with a sly grin. I'm fast. And just like that, she vanishes from in front of him. He can make out a slight blur racing down the pathway, followed by the door to the house of the albinos opening and closing. A few seconds later, sirens blare and multiple floodlights blast on. Ski Mask takes off toward the entrance. He reaches the pathway as the front doors open, and the albino female he met earlier steps out. She is scowling, and her pale eyes are filled with ferocity. Ski Mask's first instinct is to make a smart-ass comment about her genetic condition. The more angry he can make her, the more reckless she will be in the upcoming battle. But 
But before he can do anything, both of her hands dive under her coat and withdraw two knives. She hurls the first one at him. Ski Mask barely raises his right hand up in time to stop the knife from slamming into his head and scrambling his brains. The knife penetrates through the back of his hand with the point of the blade stopping just inches from his eye. The second knife is already on its way. Ski Mask dodges to his left and can feel the air gust and the blade tip nicking his hair as it whizzes by his head. The albino steps forward and kicks over one of the path light poles. She picks it up, shakes the light off the top of it, and begins whirling the metal pole above her head with both hands as she sidesteps closer to Ski Mask. In a flash, she transitions to spinning the pole in front of her, making a pinwheel of blurs before sliding the pole into her right hand and freezing in a demonstrative stance. With her free hand, she motions for him to come forward and challenge her. This elaborate display of skills would be enough to intimidate most opponents, but Ski Mask rarely encounters a formidable opponent and welcomes the competition. He smiles at her while he slowly pulls the knife from out of his right hand. A blast of gunfire from within the house causes the albino to look back over her shoulder, but she realizes she must focus on her adversary who is now brandishing the knife in his left hand and moving toward her. Leanna is through the front door of the house of albinos in the blink of an eye. She takes position against a wall and leans her head in to take a peek into the next room. The room is an armory with a breathtaking variety of guns mounted to the wall. Leanna knows that some of the albinos, including the female, prefer blades and would imagine there is at least one room somewhere within this dwelling with a similar assortment of edged arsenal decorating the walls. Mason and the albino are standing in the center of the armory, but they are not preparing or discussing weaponry as one may expect in such a room. Leanna raises her eyebrows slightly when she sees Mason staring into the albino's blanched eyes. His hand is caressing her cheek. Leanna smiles, having had no idea that this duo had a romantic connection. When the alarms go off, they both turn their heads to a security camera and see Ski Mask running toward the house. The albino whispers to herself, Bastard. She takes off like a bolt toward the front door. Mason tries to stop her. Wait! Mason has a hunch that this is likely some kind of setup, but the albino is out of the room before he can get another word out. He begins moving forward, but stops in his track when he hears the voice. Hello, Mason. The voice comes from behind him. Without hesitation, Mason lunges toward the wall, removes a mini Uzi submachine gun, turns, and begins firing. Ski Mask moves swiftly forward and strikes with the knife, but the albino parries the attempt with the pole. He aggressively surges, slashing violently multiple times, but the albino rather easily deflects every blow. She is doing a masterful job at keeping her distance and using the length of the pole to her advantage. He continues his attempts to get inside, but to no avail. She continues to circle him and block every effort he puts forth. His frustration begins to show in his voice. Come on, you milky bitch! He rushes forward with a knife in a stabbing position. The albino counters by spinning the pole and slapping his wrist with the end, which sends the knife flying into the night. She immediately follows up with a hard strike to the side of Ski Mask's face, knocking him sideways and then strikes the other side which sends him reeling. She quickly jabs the end of the pole into his stomach multiple times, doubling him over, and then finishes the barrage with a swift strike to the back of the head that sends him crashing to the ground face first. 
Not letting up, she swings the pole sideways, hoping to land the finishing blow on his skull. But anticipating the deadly move, Ski Mask rises rapidly and jumps over the pole as it arrives. It is at this very moment when another wave of machine gun fire distracts the albino, causing her head to turn toward the front door. Taking her eyes off of him was just the mistake that Ski Mask needed, and he capitalizes by bull rushing her. She attempts to swing the pole, but he's gotten too far inside of her defenses for the blow to be effective. He wraps his arms around her and with all of his weight on top of her, slams her into the ground. Mason spins as he sprays bullets throughout the room aimlessly. He can't see Leanna, just an occasional blur as she attempts to outmaneuver the onslaught of bullets. He tries his damnedest to be unpredictable as he jerks his body in a range of directions and hopes to catch her off guard. It's his only chance. Leanna is slightly surprised by Mason's aggressive move. She expected to have a brief negotiation with him before he tried anything. This is exactly why he made the move he did. Unforeseen and wise. Dodging the bullets is no problem for Leanna. She whizzes around the room like a beam of light, always making sure she is behind Mason. He's doing an admirable job of pointing the gun around in an unexpected manner. Very smart. A good tactic, but not good enough. Leanna makes a motion with her hand, and Mason is suddenly plastered face first against the wall. A few seconds later, against his will, his fingers uncurl from around the gun and it falls harmlessly to the ground. Leanna can see the tablet in the inside pocket of his jacket. She nods and it sails across the room into her hand. Now that she has what she came for, she releases Mason and he crumples to the floor. Thank you. Ski Mask is in a dominant position on top of the albino, but she is swift and able to contour her body enough to muscle into a standing position. But he still has the advantage. He wraps his hand around her throat and drives her back against the body of a gargantuan tree trunk. She grabs onto his forearm with both of her hands and tries to knee him in the groin, but she's losing energy fast, and he's too close to her for the blows to have enough momentum to sway him. Her pale face begins to redden as his hand constricts. Ski Mask can feel her beginning to go limp when he hears a loud crack behind him and a sharp pain in his right shoulder that causes him to wheel around. The albino falls to the ground, coughing, as Ski Mask sees Mason pointing a gun at him. Behind Mason, a black van pulls up and several albino males emerge and run toward him. They are irrelevant, though, because Mason has him lined up perfectly, and at any second, he expects the lights to go out. A massive gust of wind hits Ski Mask, and suddenly he's looking down at Mason and rising quickly. Mason looks up at him, readjusts his aim, and fires. But by this time, Ski Mask's distance is too far for Mason's shot to be successful. Ski Mask watches on as the brother albinos converge on their sister. She is now sitting up as they begin to assist her. He can see Mason lower his aim in defeat and turn his attention to his albino companion. Ski Mask continues to watch them all until they become ants underneath him. Within seconds, he is too far away to make out any of them at all. After a few moments, he begins to slowly descend, and he can now see that he is being cradled by Leanna. They reach the ground, and he observes that they are standing next to a lake. He can see subtle shimmering of ripples under the moonlight, and hear the passive sound of night insects as he slowly begins to get his bearings. What the hell just happened? I saved you. She holds up the tablet and smiles. Nice job. We make a good team. 
Ski Mask gazes out over the lake. In the distance, the loud splash of a fish breaking the surface can be heard. The meeting of the lake's edge rippling against the shoreline relaxes him. It's quite the peaceful scene. Ski Mask raises his gaze to the star-soaked sky. His drifting thought does not go unnoticed by Leanna. What are you thinking about? At first, Ski Mask doesn't respond. He continues to soak in the serene surroundings a moment longer before turning to Leanna. What's it like to live forever? I wouldn't know. You know better than I do. If you age one year for every ten human years, you may live to be 800, 900 years old. Possibly. That's forever to me. It's all perspective. Do you know how long a crane fly lives? About two weeks in total. No more than a few days as an adult. Leanna grins, surprised and impressed with his knowledge of crane flies. Your lifespan is forever to a crane fly. Fair enough, but if you could extend your life, choose to have a second life and a third life, would you? And prolong what's next? Never. Ski Mask looks at her seriously. What is next? Leanna smiles, displaying her perfect white teeth. Something wonderful. Leanna studies Ski Mask as he looks back over the water and up into the sky. She notices his blood-soaked shirt around his right shoulder and motions to his arm. How is it? He attempts to lift his right arm, but can't. It's dead. Hmm. How about the left arm? He raises it. It's fine. She nods. Good enough. Now comes the hard part. Chapter 5 Suicide Mission The mansion is enormous. It's a breathtaking sight with meticulous features blending Romanesque and Italian influences. A prominent turret highlights the center of the structure, and the porch is lined with imposing columns. The surrounding nightlife is drowned out by the relaxing cascade of a nearby bronze fountain. The grounds are vast and well kept. The wide pathway is decorated with two rows of animal manicured shrubs, giving Ski Mask the feeling that he is being watched as he approaches the entrance. Upon arriving at the mansion, Ski Mask recalls Leanna being impressed by its age. Catherine is 350 years old, she said. Likely the same age as this mansion. Right off the bat, he knew that estimate was incorrect, but who is he to argue with a vampire? With closer inspection of the structure, Ski Mask would make the assessment that Catherine had at least 100 years on this particular structure. Leanna said that there would be no guard station anywhere on the grounds, and so far she is absolutely correct. They're expecting us, but that's not allowed. Whatever that means. He stops, takes his ski mask out from his back pocket, and pulls it down over his face before approaching the main entrance. The lock on the door is nothing elaborate, and he picks it easily. He opens the door wide, wanting to get a good look at the interior before entering. A gust of wind rushes in from behind, and he thinks he notices a blur move past him, but he can't be certain. 
Ski Mask strolls forward into the house. He isn't sure what to expect, but he's ready for something. He can hear the occasional drop of blood dripping off of his hand onto the floor. He had torn off a piece of his shirt and wrapped it around his knife wound, but by now it's completely blood-soaked and losing its purpose. The foyer is wide and composed of early 20th century decor. The deep red walls give the entrance a warm feel. Medleys of antique decorations are well-placed throughout the foyer, giving the place a museum atmosphere. In the distance, his eyes lock onto a tapestry featuring a reproduction of a rather graphic oil painting by Géricault called Head of a Guillotine Man. At least my blood won't clash with the theme. Due to a combination of the hall being sparsely lit and being distracted by the impressive tapestry, Schemas doesn't notice the figure of the man at the bottom of the stairwell and is startled by the consecutive pops of three gunshots. None of the shots hit its target, and Ski Mask hones in on the thin old man who has to be well into his 80s as he steps into the light and fires off three more rounds, the final one hitting Ski Mask in his useless arm. The old man begins reloading his gun. Ski Mask realizes that the odds of him surviving another six shots is remote. He grabs a brass candlestick from a nearby table and hurls it at the old man. It hits him in the hand area, slowing him up just enough for Ski Mask to rush him and make impact just before the old man can snap the revolver's cylinder back in place. The old man falls backward. His head thuds against the hardwood floor, momentarily knocking him senseless. Before Ski Mask can turn, another man bursts onto the scene and slams the blade of a six-inch hunting knife into Ski Mask's right upper arm. The man withdraws the knife and quickly swipes at Ski Mask, missing his throat by mere centimeters. Ski Mask steps back to gauge his opponent. An average-sized man, who while no spring chicken, is at least 30 years younger than the old man. His eyes are dark and focused. Sensing that the man is about to lunge, Ski Mask readies himself, and when the man enters his range, Ski Mask kicks him squarely in the balls. He follows this up by kicking the knife out of his hands and then knocking him backwards with a kick to the chest. Ski Mask bends down and picks up the man's knife. His arm hurts like hell from the stab, but he can use it well enough to carve this guy up. Before Ski Mask can step forward, he feels a vice-like grip around his throat. He is thrust backward against the wall and then lifted several feet into the air. He looks down at his assailant. A thin woman with short blonde hair wearing a Japanese house jacket is holding him in the air and penetrating him with her deep blue eyes. The old man rises up with the help of his companion, and they watch on as the woman, who remains emotionless, holds Ski Mask with one hand and removes his Ski Mask with the other. She studies his face closely and speaks. You have nice eyes. Ski Mask has to strain to respond. You have nice tits. The younger of the two men lunges forward in anger, but is held back by the old man. How many times do I have to tell you about remaining cool, calm, and collected? Nobody speaks to Catherine like that. And she'll take care of it. The younger man still has to be held back until Catherine addresses them. Leave us. The younger man stops and the old man ushers him away, leaving Catherine alone with their foe. Although her expression remains emotionless, she can't mask the rage filling her eyes. These two men mean something to her, and she will exact revenge. 
There is clearly nothing Ski Mask can do about that. Ski Mask stares back at her. The intensity in his eyes can't match hers, but it's not for a lack of trying. She continues to study his face and then closes her eyes and breathes in deep. You're not the complete monster everyone thinks you are. You have a genuine care for your animals. Ski Mask begins to struggle. He is bothered by her insight into his feelings. And you care for someone else. A young lady. Ski Mask kicks fruitlessly and cuts her off before she can go any further. So you're 350 years old, huh? Bet you've sucked a lot of cock in those years. Her grip tightens, successfully eliminating his ability to speak further. Don't worry. I won't tell Claire about your feelings. But unfortunately, neither will you. Schemas was hoping she'd stop talking about him and his feelings. He was also hoping for some kind of emotional response from his crass remark. But Catherine doesn't give him the satisfaction, maintaining her stone expression as she plunges her right hand into his stomach and then thrusts upward. Schemas tries to grin at her, but the pain has reached such an excruciating level it comes across as a wince. He can feel her hand moving around inside of him, making some kind of soup out of his organs. If her goal is to make this as painful on him as possible, she's succeeding. Fortunately for Ski Mask, the torture only lasts a few seconds before his life expires. Catherine lets Ski Mask go, and his body plummets to the floor. After 350 years of life, not much surprises Catherine, but she is shocked when Ski Mask rises and beats a hasty retreat toward the front door. Ski Mask is inches from the front door when he feels his legs give out and finds himself face first against the floor. He attempts to stand, but an invisible force is pulling him back deeper into the house. Back to Catherine. Shit, it looks like I'm going to lose all of my lives in one night. Catherine holds her hand outward as she summons Ski Mask back into her grip. Once again, she holds him by the throat and holds him high into the air. She says nothing, but Ski Mask can tell by her expression that she is confused. Nonetheless, she pulls her hand, which is still dripping with his entrails, into a ready position and is about to impale him again when she hears Leanna's voice. Stop! Catherine holds her death blow, but continues to hold Ski Mask in place as she looks back over her shoulder at Leanna, who stands at the top of a staircase holding up a three-foot golden scepter sparkling with rubies and diamonds. She smiles. It's over. Catherine loosens her grip and drops Ski Mask to the floor. Chapter 6 Monster Bash The sight is nothing short of spectacular. Something most people couldn't even imagine, let alone see. The extensive ballroom is elegantly fashioned with the most elaborate blown glass chandeliers he's ever seen. They line the ceiling, each giving the appearance of a bursting ball of fire frozen in mid-explosion. There are rows of decorative columns on each side of the room. Young women are strapped to each column. They are alive, but extremely groggy, as if sedated. As enormous as it is, the room can barely fit the majority of guests who occupy it. 
Ski Mask assumes the majority of them are pure line vampires, since so many are frequenting the tied up girls and drinking directly from their bodies. As he gazes across the extensive ballroom, he notices that vampires come in a variety of shapes and sizes. The assortment of attire is something that piques Ski Mask's interest. With one quick glance across the room, he can identify a sari, a hanfu, multiple kaminos, a seraphan, lederhosen, several kilts, what he's pretty sure is a Scandinavian gaki, a few dashikis, and even one vampire wearing a trahedelusis, which most would only expect to see on a matador. Ski Mask's gaze stops when he sees the younger of the two men he fought earlier. He has cleaned up since the skirmish. His hair is slicked back and he is wearing a nice black button-up shirt, but is still seething. He stares daggers at Ski Mask from across the room. Ski Mask locks eyes with him for a few moments until he is distracted by a voice next to him. Ten years ago, I would have hit the bullseye with all six of those shots. I'm getting old. The old man is dressed for the occasion as well, wearing a suit and jacket. He holds out his hand. I'm Lee. Ski Mask nods and shakes his hand. Lee motions toward his companion. You'll have to forgive my apprentice, Jack. He can hold a grudge. Insults hurled at Catherine aren't taken lightly by either of us, but he sure has a knack for holding on to negative emotions longer than one should. He's in his fifties, but he's still learning. He's a fantastic apprentice. I really couldn't ask for anyone better. It's nice to have someone you can count on. That statement makes Schemas stop and think of Claire. His thoughts linger on her longer than he thinks they should, so he changes the subject. So what the hell happened tonight? Leanna didn't explain? Schemas shakes his head. Oh, that's right. It would be against the rules. Rules? You took part in a ritual tonight. It's Leanna's 100th birthday. When a pure line vampire reaches triple digits, they are presented with a quest to find the 100-year scepter. They are only given the name of an elder pure line vampire who will possess the scepter. Catherine was drawn as the possessor for Leanna. Leanna had a small window to determine the location of the scepter and then 24 hours of her triple digit birthday to obtain it. Catherine was guarding the scepter. Caretakers are allowed to assist, so we were monitoring the rest of the mansion. Once you put us in harm's way, Catherine intervened, leaving the scepter unattended long enough for Leanna to retrieve it. He drops his head in shame. We failed Catherine tonight. We proved to be her weakness, and Leanna exploited that. It was clever. You came through for Leanna. I hope she paid you well. Ski Mask acknowledges his lofty payment with a nod and goes back to gazing about the room. Quite the scene, isn't it? I can honestly say I've never seen anything like it. These don't happen often. I'm 86 years old and I've never seen one of these before tonight. Well, you're obviously not one of these vampires. Lee corrects him. Pure line vampires. No, I'm not. I'm Catherine's caretaker. Jack there is my apprentice. What do you do? We assist Catherine in her day-to-day -day life. I imagine she can take care of herself just fine. Lee chuckles. 
<laughs> You'd be surprised. The life of a pure line vampire is complex, and while she is powerful, she can't be everywhere at once. It's nice to have assistance to help. Ski Mask's mind drifts to Claire and how much she does for him. Sometimes he begins to wonder what life would be like without her, but he always pushes that thought from his mind before it can properly manifest. It's not a thought he wants to have. Yes, it is. Lee nods and is about to walk away when Ski Mask asks him a question. How long have you been doing this? Since I was 13 years old. 13? Have you ever regretted making that decision? Lee doesn't hesitate when he answers. Never. Not for one second of my life. I love Catherine. I've always loved her. To spend your entire life with someone you love, isn't that what it's all about? Lee gives Ski Mask a pat on the back and walks deeper into the room. Ski Mask watches him as he mingles with a few others, but his mind stays on Lee's question. Is that what it's all about? His thought is interrupted by the squeal of a microphone. Someone on a stage at the back of the room begins to speak. Thank you, one and all, for attending the 100-year birthday bash for our guest of honor, Liana. The speaker holds for the long round of applause to diminish. Not only has she reached triple digits, but she is one of only seven Pureline vampires in the last thousand years to successfully retrieve the 100-year scepter. The crowd erupts and looks up as Liana floats effortlessly above them and quietly places herself at the center of the stage and speaks into the microphone. Thank you, Pure Lines. I'm honored to have you all here tonight to help me usher in my triple digits. It was a privilege to participate in the Scepter Quest, and I could not have achieved victory without my partner in crime who survived the night. I affectionately refer to him as Ski Mask. He's in the back of the room. Give him a hand. He's shy. The room erupts in ovation as the pure line vampires turn to look at Ski Mask. Lee moves close to Ski Mask and points at him so that all in the room know exactly who Ski Mask is. Ski Mask stands stationary, astonished by the reception. He looks around at the cheering crowd. Several of the pure line vampires near the stage float upward to get a better view of him. Everyone appears to be commending Ski Mask, with the exception of Jack, who continues to stare at him with pure hatred. Ski Mask begins to feel uncomfortable with the attention. He gives a quick courtesy wave to the mass in hopes that will bring the applause to an end. As hoped, it quickly diminishes to a smattering and the attendees go back to their mingling. Ski Mask turns when he hears the voice behind him. Why aren't you dead? Catherine's gaze is cold, and he can still see a touch of ire in her eyes. There's nothing pleasant about the energy she is putting forth. Before he can respond, Leanna appears next to him. He doesn't divulge his secrets. For example, he's not anxious to tell me about Claire. This perks Catherine's curiosity. You sensed her too. Leanna nods while Ski Mask shakes his head. You know what? You pure line vampires are meddlesome. I think I'm ready to go. Thank you, Ski Mask. Leanna floats up to meet him at eye level and gives him a tender kiss on the cheek. I'm proud of you. Ski Mask nods and chuckles to himself at the motherly feeling he just received from a girl with the appearance of a ten-year-old. 
As the Pureline vampires watch him walk out of the ballroom into the night, Catherine speaks. You may want to consider him for a caretaker. Leanna shakes her head. His heart lies elsewhere. Chapter 7 Home Again The sun has risen by the time Ski Mask approaches the entrance to his home. The Pureline vampires were insistent that he had feelings for Claire, but he never thought about her in that way. She's an employee, someone who works for him and takes care of things for him. She's nothing more than that. He kept telling himself that over and over, even though he couldn't help but wonder how she was doing while he was away, and that he was looking forward to seeing her more than usual. Ski Mask enters his home and is surprised to find himself smiling as he sees Claire rise from the couch and approach him. But she's not smiling. She's not happy. She seems sullen. Something is wrong. Ski Mask's smile disappears as he grows concerned. What's wrong? Claire clears her throat and lets out a deep breath. Tears are welling up in her eyes and her voice is choppy when she speaks. It's Madeline. The End The Nine Lives of Ski Mask continues with Life 5, Medusa. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Be sure to visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for the free newsletter and receive a free book and movie. We'll see you soon. Very soon.